Keep at it, Vinny. They're almost there. Let me take you, uh, ask you to take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, this is where we've been the last few weeks. And we pretty much covered everything uh, in this chapter, but I had one more look just to make sure. And uh, as I reread it, especially the last two verses uh, before heading into chapter 7 and the whole discussion of Jesus as uh, the Melchizedek uh, priest. I was pulled up again by uh, a word there in verse 20, the word forerunner. Let me just read you not just verse 20, but verse 19. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain. And Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, that word forerunner pulled me up again. And literally the word means to run ahead or go ahead. I mean, forerunner, you kind of hear it in the, the word, someone that runs before. Uh, the majority of translations that I checked actually have all, uh, all of them, I should say most of them, rather, that I checked had forerunner. Uh, a couple of them have precursor, which means the same thing. But it was interesting that a number of them left the word completely out and just simply translated it as Jesus entered before us. Just giving the idea more than the exact word. And I, I get why they may have done that, just to smooth out the translation. But I, I was thinking, and it really begged me to ask, how important is the word and should it not be translated into the sentence? I mean, should the word not be there, not just the idea? Uh, after all, every word is um, inspired. Every word is chosen carefully. It's given to make a particular point, if not a memorable one. And so, uh, again, just reflecting on this word uh, forerunner, it's obviously making a point. I mean, Jesus didn't just enter heaven, which he did, but he entered heaven for us, on behalf of us. Jesus entered heaven so that we could follow him into heaven. And that's all packed into that word forerunner. The word used outside of the Bible in the first century was used for messengers, used for scouts. Interestingly enough, it was used for boats. Listen to this. In the first century, and the word forerunner there is prodramas, Padramus was the word used to describe the smaller boats that were sent into the harbor by larger ships that were unable to enter due to stormy conditions. These smaller boats, or Padramoi, carried the anchor through the breakers inside the harbor and dropped it there, securing the large ship. End quote. That was a forerunner. And when I read that, and hopefully as you heard that, that, that becomes a picture that the author is painting for us, an image, so to speak, so we have something to grasp on who Jesus is and what he has done. I mean, you think about it. With, with this illustration, there's um, 
the ocean, it's, it's stormy, the stormy seas, the waves are going up, the waves are going down. The boats are coming into the harbor, but they're finding it a bit difficult to come into the harbor because of the choppy seas. Then all of a sudden, you see another boat. You see a smaller boat, a forerunner, guiding them into safety and security. And you take all of that to Jesus in terms of what he has done. He is our forerunner again, bringing us into heaven safety, safely and securely. By the way, I hadn't picked up this before, but much of the language in Hebrews and its imagery is, is nautical. It's from the vocabulary of the, the seas and the ships. Um, you remember back in chapter 2, he told us to beware of drifting. You know, drifting obviously has that idea of drifting out to sea. A number of times we are told to hold fast, hold fast to our confession. Uh, hold fast has the background of securing ropes on a boat. And then, of course, there's that word anchor there that you see. That's obvious. That's from the nautical world. Anchor is a symbol of stability and, and, and movability. And then, of course, you come back to verse 20 and forerunner. And so I, I don't know if this is telling us, in a sense, where these people live. Maybe they live by the ocean. <laughs> or what they do. Maybe they're all sailors. Uh, but these are pictures or images to help us understand who Jesus is and what he has done. In fact, it occurred to me here as I was meditating on this that the writer of Hebrews actually does this throughout this whole letter. He, he gives Jesus a number of titles and images that describe not only Again, who Jesus is, but what he has done, especially what he's done in his atoning work on the cross. So, in reflecting on all that, I went about an exercise this week. I went all the way back to chapter 1, and I walked right through Hebrews and looked for all the images and all the titles of Jesus and his work. Particular words that would illuminate and illustrate the majesty and glory of Christ. Uh, I counted them up, I cataloged them, and then I categorized them. And the fruit of all that is in your bulletin. You can see that in the middle of your bulletin. I, I've split them all up into really two main categories. Two categories uh, because, generally speaking, there's two aspects of Christ's work. You can see that the, the first category is Jesus bringing salvation from God to man. And then secondly, the second category, Jesus bringing reconciliation from man to God. That's how I categorize. And this is where all the images lie in one of those two categories, either in the category of Jesus's humiliation or in the category of Jesus's exaltation. There were two titles, however, that really fit both of those, and so that's why you have that third category there at the end. So hopefully you can, you can read it. I know the small print. But what I want us to do this morning, just as an exercise and, and really a helpful meditation as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, I, I want us to walk through these. I, I don't think we'll finish all of them this morning, but we'll, we'll get a running start, probably just finish the first category. But if you were to add all of them up, there are about 13 images there, 13 pictures. And so in going through this, I want 
If you have your Bible ready, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of Hebrews and work our way through it and let you see um, what the image is. We'll explain what the image is and hopefully have a better understanding of who Jesus is and more specifically what he has done, especially in his atoning work on the cross. Now, by the way, there are a few titles that I left out of this list, titles, images that um, are in Hebrews, but they're all over the New Testament, so they're not really unique to Hebrews. Um, titles such as Lord, Jesus is called Lord four times in the book of Hebrews. He's also called the Son of God, or just simply the Son, uh, 11 times, and we'll leave that out because, again, that's not necessarily unique to, to Hebrews. He's also referred to as God. Jesus is God there in the first chapter, and we'll leave that one out as well. So the, the remaining, what you see there, those 13, as I say, are unique to, to the book of Hebrews. Images, titles for Jesus that help us understand who he is and what he has done. And like I said, I think you'll find this very edifying as we walk through it. So go all the way back to chapter 2. And let's look at this first category, this, this category of titles or images that describe Jesus bringing salvation from God to man. This is what he has come in the flesh to do, so to speak. The first one there in chapter 2, verse 11, you read it that he is the sanctifier. Hebrews 2.11 says, For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Now, you can see at the beginning of verse 11, there's a three-letter word, for. And that tells you what? That is connected with verse 10. So go back to verse 10 so we get the full flow here. And, of course, verse 10 begins with four. For in bringing many sons and daughters in glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer, and we'll come back to that word later. That's in the second category. Of their salvation, pioneer of their salvation, perfect through sufferings. And here's our word. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one Father and again, this is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Now, before you get to the sanctifying part, the one who sanctifies, you see there in verse 10, what flows into that is that he became perfect. You see that in verse 10, through suffering. Now, when we talked about this back in chapter 2 all those months ago, I uh, just need to remind you, perfect here doesn't mean uh, something like he was imperfect and then he became perfect. Jesus was perfect all through his life from the day he was born. He's the perfect, sinless, undefiled, blameless son of God. So the word perfect there, get the idea of imperfection to perfection out of your head. Perfect here, if you remember, has the idea of being qualified. He was perfected. That is to say, he, he went to the school of suffering and he graduated. He became qualified to be a high priest. That's, that's the idea then. And, and so on the heels of that, when you come to verse 11 and you got that four, it's further explaining why it, it is appropriate for Jesus to be perfected through suffering. Both Jesus, now watch this, both Jesus and those 
being sanctified, that is those, which is us, Jesus and us are going to be exalted, brought to glory. But his point here, as you can see, is that we all share the same nature. number of times in the book of Hebrews, he has to really pound the pulpit for them to understand and for us to understand, and we heard it at the Truth of the Gospel conference, that he was truly and fully man. He was of flesh and blood. It wasn't like a man or some kind of aberration of a man. He was a man. Truly God, yes, but truly man. And that's his point. Because what he says literally is they are all one. You see that at the end of verse 11? They are all one. They all have one Father. And that's how the Christian Standard Bible and a few other translations. The Father there is actually added. Some translations, if you have ESV, have all have one source. The NIV has all from the same family. They're all making the same point. And the point is that those of us all have the same nature and ultimately have all the same father. Hence why he's not ashamed to call his brothers and sisters. We're we're family. He's our elder brother. And it's because of all that, notice, Jesus is the one who sanctifies. Now, being sanctified means what? It, It means made holy. He makes us holy. And this is extraordinary. I mean, to say that Jesus sanctifies, uh, really, which is much of the book of Hebrews, takes you back to Leviticus. And it's in Leviticus, and I can give you the text, but we don't have time to turn there. But in those texts in Leviticus, it is the Lord who sanctifies his people. The Lord sanctifies his people. Yes, they are called to himself. He's called them as a holy nation. But they themselves are sanctified. And you carry it over to the book of Hebrews and to what Jesus does. This is his point. The point here is that Jesus and his brothers do share the same nature. But, listen, Jesus stands apart in the sense that he does the sanctifying. And guess what? We get sanctified. You got that? Now, you might say, well, how does he do that? Well, let me read you Philip Hughes, the commentator, as he explains. He says this, The sanctification of which our author speaks is intimately connected with and flows from Christ's priestly offering of himself on the cross. His consecration of himself is the source of our consecration. End quote. Did you get that? Just as the people in the Old Testament were sanctified by the blood, we are sanctified by the blood. He is the one who sanctifies us by his blood. Later in Hebrews it says, without holiness no one will see the Lord. You have to be holy. You have to be sanctified. Certainly positionally. Positionally we have to be sanctified. But of course, the evidence of being positionally sanctified is that you're being what? Practically sanctified. And we'll come back to that point a little bit later when we see another image. But let's move on. That's one. And we we can't spend a lot of time on each one. We've got to run through this. So that's the first image. Jesus is, quote unquote, the sanctifier. That's what he does to us. He sanctifies us. 
Now you come into chapter 3, go over to chapter 3, verse 1. We read this, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, and here's the next word, the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is the only place in the New Testament that I know of where specifically Jesus is referred to as the apostle. Now there were apostles, there were 12 apostles as you know, and they were 12 disciples before they became apostles. An apostle, you remember what the word means, it means what? A sent one. Someone who was sent is referred to as an apostle. The disciples trained for Jesus for three years, and after their graduation, Jesus turned them around, dubbed them an apostle, and sent them out. Jesus, however, consider him the apostle, the sent one. Sent from where? And who sent him? Well, I'll let Jesus answer that. Just listen to these verses. The major theme in the Gospel of John, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And here it is. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus the Apostle. Jesus the sent one. Jesus the missionary. God sent him. And yes, sent him on a mission for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. I have come, Jesus says, as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. You remember the conversation with Pilate. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. For this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then, commissioning the apostles, he says at the end of John, Peace be to you. As my Father has sent me, also I send you. Now, by the way, also you could connect Jesus as the apostle back in the Old Testament. Because back in the Old Testament, he's also equated with the angel or the messenger of the Lord, right? But we'll just mention it and leave it there. The point is that he's the apostle. He was sent from God, and being sent means that he had a mission. And that mission, as you know, was to come, what? To die. Basically, in a word, he came to die. And in giving his death, all that believe in him shall have life, everlasting life. Now, a couple of verses down in chapter 3, verse 3, we get our next image. Here's the third image. Another image, remember, we're describing Jesus bringing salvation from God to man. Here in verse 3 we read, For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses. Now remember, Moses was a faithful guy. You go back and read Numbers 12. He speaks to Moses differently than all the other prophets because he's faithful, the meekest man in all the earth, it was said. So not only is Jesus better than Moses because Moses was faithful and he was a faithful servant, but Jesus is his son. But here also, notice that Jesus is referred to as what? A builder. 
For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. So if you want to say that Moses was the, uh, the house and the, the, the Israel was the house and the church is the house, obviously that's an image Paul uses. We are the family of God. We are the, the house of, of God. But who's the builder of the house? Most likely, this is taken from Zechariah. And if you want to turn there real quick, I think you'll... you'll You'll find this interesting. Go back to Zechariah, toward the Old Testament, end of the Old Testament, and a post-exilic prophet, just to go back to our earlier discussion. Go back to Zechariah 6 for a moment. Look at verse 12. And there's this, just jumping in here, the branch is, is another name for the Messiah. And in verse 12 of Zechariah, you are to tell him, This is what the Lord of armies says. Here is a man whose name is Branch. Again, that's the messianic title. He will branch out from his place. And here's the the building aspect. And build the Lord's temple. Yes, he will build the Lord's temple. Notice mentioned twice. The chiasm, for those who know what a chiasm is. He will bear royal splendor and will sit on his throne and rule. There will be a priest on his throne and there will be a peaceful council or a council of peace between the two of them. Now, the two of who? God and the branch? No, there's there's peace between God and his son. There's peace between God and the Messiah. But there needs to be peace between who? God and man. And the remedy uh, for that, that enmity that would bring peace is this branch. This branch which is the Messiah, which ultimately is going to be Christ, is the builder. And notice he's going to build the Lord's temple. Who are the temple of God? Who's the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's his people. He builds a people for God. And notice also he's on his throne, which points to his, what? Kingship. But there's, there's also this aspect that there will be a priest on his throne. What does that mean? That this Messiah is not just going to be a king, but he's going to be a what? A king priest, which then come back to our discussion in Hebrews, maybe in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 7, because Jesus is a king priest, and he's a king priest according to the order of who? Melchizedek, but it's right here in Zechariah. Jesus is the builder of a house. He's a builder of the Lord's temple. And there's going to be a council of peace between the Father and Son. That is, they come up with a plan of salvation to which the Son responds. And, and some of you are cluey will know that this is the background to a particular doctrine called the Covenant of Redemption or the Pactum Salutis. Um, this is where kind of uh, is, is a, one of the main Old Testament texts that, uh, that formulates that. But coming back to Hebrews now, you come back to Hebrews The writer of Hebrews is, is, is giving us images of who Jesus is and what he's done. And he's a, he's a builder. He's the builder of a house. He's the builder of the Lord's temple. And that's the church. That's the believers. The church is the believers. Let's move on to another image. Come over to chapter 5, verse 9. Here's another image that we could say is bringing salvation from God to man. Hebrews 5.9 says, And after he was perfected, and remember, 
qualified. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. So obviously our next image there is He's the source or the author of eternal salvation. Now, just to get the flow here, remember, perfected means it has the idea of perfectly uh, perfectly equipped, qualified, having completed his testing, training, as it were, through sufferings. In other words, the sufferings made him fit as a high priest, which ultimately, as you know, a priest has that representative and, and saving character about it. And thus, the writer of Hebrews says, he became the source of eternal salvation. Now, by the way, the word here, source, is very different from... Uh, some translations use the word source back in chapter 2, verse 10, and again in verse chapter 12, verse 2, and we'll come to that. Um, the Christian Standard Bible has the word pioneer and not source. So if, if, you're think, if you have source here and then source over um, in chapter 6, it's not the same word. The two different words here. The, the word source here simply means that he gives salvation, that he grants salvation to those who follow him. You see that? You could say that he is the cause of salvation. There is no salvation apart from Christ. What did he say in John? I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father except through me. If you want life eternal, if you want eternal salvation, there is only one name given to men under heaven by which you may get it, and it is Christ. And this is another way of describing it. He is the source or the cause of salvation. He's the author of salvation. Listen to Charles Spurgeon on this. He says this, He is the designer, the creator, the worker, and cause of salvation. By salvation has been accomplished. His right hand and his holy arm have secured his victory. He has trodden a winepress alone and, and of the people there was none with him. He is the author of salvation in this sense, that every blessing comes through him. All the various departments of salvation, whether they may be election, calling, justification, or sanctification, all bless us through him according as the Father has chosen us in him from before the foundation of the world. In him we are called, in him Preserved in Him, accepted. All grace flows from Him. Christ is all and in all. Salvation within us is all His work. Those whom Jesus saved are saved indeed. Man can be the author of temporary salvation, but only He who is a high priest forever can bring in a salvation that endures forever. End quote. And by the way, notice at the end there, salvation is for who? For those who obey him. Don't miss that. And this is a point that's made over and over in Hebrews. Faith and obedience are inseparable. Right? There's, there's no salvation apart from obedience. I mean, James, you know how James puts it. You, you show me um, your faith by your works. Works are in the, and we say this over and over again, but just to remind you, works, obedience is not the root of your salvation, but it is also the what? Fruit of your salvation. So how do you know if you're saved? Right? How do I, how do 
I know if I am saved? Well, Romans 8.16 says, you know, your spirit testifies with God's spirit that I am the child of God. So there's that inner testimony. But then on the outside, we should see some fruit. We should see, see some fruit in your life. We should see some obedience in your life. That's ultimately how you can know if you have salvation. And again, it's not the direction, but it is what, or, or the perfection rather, but it is the direction. Is there a pattern in your life of obedience? We have to say that because it's there, right? He became the source of eternal salvation. Not for everybody. We're not universalists here. He became the source of salvation only for those who obey him. But it's not a works salvation. It's a faith salvation. But the obedience comes after that. Let's move on. Chapter 7, verse 22 is where we find our next image. There he's called the guarantor or the guarantee. Hebrews 7, 22. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, that covenant is also called the what? The new covenant. And why did they need a new covenant? Why did they need a better covenant? I mean, the old covenant was there, and it was a gracious covenant in the sense that it did bring God with man. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, it, it was a ministry of death. It, it was a covenant written on stone, where the new covenant is one that's written on what? The flesh, on the heart. The old covenant condemned them. You just look at the Ten Commandments and you're dead because you've disobeyed this one, this one. In fact, you've disobeyed all of them and the wages of sin is death. So there needs to be a better covenant. One of life, not of death. And here, Jesus is our covenant mediator, but he's also the guarantee of that covenant. Uh, hopefully you know what, a, what guarantee means. Guarantee describes one who gives security, one who guarantees the reality of something. I mean, it was used of one who guarantees someone else's overdraft at a bank, thus becoming surety, that's another word, that the money will be paid. In, in, in Greek secular writings, the word referred to in legal and promissory documents as a guarantor. In other words, the one who stands in security, the one who stands for the security of something that was promised. I mean, I, I, as you know, you go to a bank and you want to take out a loan, and if you don't have, uh, you know, assets to secure that loan, you know, why should I give you a loan, says the bank? And maybe <laughs> you need some help. So what do you bring in? You bring in someone that can be counted on, that can give a good word for you and say, well, if he defaults, I'll take care of it. Hence a secured loan. That person becomes what? A guarantor or a guarantee. And here Jesus is that guarantee. He's a guarantee of a better covenant in as much as that what? Notice what he says here. He established it with an oath. Now, back in chapter 6, remember, God not only promised Abraham something, but then he swore by those promises. Now, the fact that he said it 
should be enough, right? That's God. God's trustworthy. God's faithful. If he says something, he, he means it. But Abraham, like all of us, are flesh. We're frail. We're fickle. We need... We, we need something else. So God condescends and says, look, all right, my word is good, but I'll make an oath just to make sure that you know that it is secure. And so he does that with Abraham. And Jesus does this as well. He swears. There's an oath here. See that? And, and the, the issue here, and the issue all the way through the book of Hebrews, is that these people need to know certainty. They're doubting. They, they've lost hope. And because of that, they're unstable. They're waffling. How do you give them hope? Well, uh, we've just done this for the last whatever minutes in showing who Jesus is and by painting him a picture of his, his grandeur and his glory and his majesty. And all of these pictures give hope, but they also give security, especially this word. As I said, certainty is the issue here. The word guarantee, along with oath, drives home the certainty of what was promised. Whatever goes on down here, whatever persecution, whatever trials, whatever tribulations, there is no thing, nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Now, you might be wondering, in what sense does Jesus stand as a guarantee? Well, let me say this. The author doesn't say here that Jesus fulfills the debts humans being owed to God. In one sense, he he does that. But what the emphasis here is on is that Jesus guarantees God's fidelity and faithfulness. In one sense, Jesus is God's guarantee. Do you got that? I mean, God's promise, he's sworn an oath, and then here comes Jesus to back it all up. I mean, what else do you need to have certainty? Does that make sense? In other words, the superiority of Jesus, our high priest, guarantees salvation for all those who draw near to God through him. You want salvation? You cry out to God for salvation. You cry out to him in faith. He saves you. He forgives you. He washes you. He sanctifies you. He adopts you. It justifies in there somewhere, obviously. And all of that is, is, is certainty. Remember, biblically, hope is not, I wish I, hope, I wish I could go to heaven. No, biblical hope is certainty based on God's promises. You know you're going. There's an expectancy you're going. Now, again, we're fickle people and we waver and we drift. What's going to bring that? Security, that stability, that immovability on knowing who Christ is and what he's done and doing it through certain aspects of, of that person and work. And here he's the, minister, the, the guarantee. Let's go to the minister, however. Go over to chapter 8, verse 2. In chapter 8, verse 2, so for seven chapters, he's, he's trying to make a point And in case they didn't get it, I love this. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. No other high priest has done that. 
And then here's our word, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. Jesus is a minister of the sanctuary, a minister. Literally, the word is a worker of the people. That's what a minister was, a worker of the people. In classic Greek, the word referred especially to persons performing public duties or works of public use. This Greek word is used in the Old Testament to describe the, the priests who were serving in the temple. That, that's what priests did. They, they, they were ministers. They were ministers of the temple. Before that, they were the ministers of the tabernacle. This, by the way, takes us all the way back to the garden. The garden, you remember, was a proto-tabernacle, proto-temple. It was a sanctuary. It was a place where God and man and woman would commune. And you remember... The job description that God gave Adam, Genesis 2.15. He took the man, he put him in the garden. So he was created outside and he put him in the garden. And it says there that he was to what? Minister or serve the garden and to watch and keep it. Those two verbs, serve and keep, minister and watch, those two verbs in terms of his duty were the exact same two verbs and the duties of the priests in the temple and tabernacle. And it's the same job description of Jesus. He's the minister of what? The sanctuary. The heavenly sanctuary. So where the first Adam failed, the last Adam what? Succeeded. He's the minister of the sanctuary. And this is why he's better. This is why he's greater. This is why he is the greater high priest. Jesus is the greatest priest since he dwells in God's presence and ministers on our behalf in the heavenly realm where God dwells. Now, obviously, the writer of Hebrews, uh, in writing this, understood that they would have gotten that. They would have connected what a minister was with their Old Testament background. But he is a minister, a worker of the people. What people? Us. Those who believe. Those who followed him in. One more. One more and then we'll go to the Lord's Supper. Last one there comes in chapter 13, verse 20. And we normally give this as a benediction. And it is a benediction here. But the last image in this category of describing Jesus bringing salvation from God to man is that he is... The great shepherd of the sheep. You see that? Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Just stop there. I think we all know what a shepherd is. We just read Ezekiel 34, shepherds in the Bible. And of course Christians were able to have some idea what a shepherd is, even if you're a city boy like me. I know what a shepherd is. A shepherd is literally someone who cares for a flock. It's someone who herds and feeds and tends sheep. He's a sheep herder. Sheep herder, a shepherd, one and the same. A.T. Robertson says it's from a root meaning to protect. That, that was basically the, the, the idea of what a shepherd is. Surely he fed the sheep, but more so he protected the sheep. That, that was the main responsibility of a shepherd. It was to protect. He, he is there to keep the flock intact, to protect them, and, and ultimately to provide for them. And obviously, when 
Jesus is referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep. I, I know your mind races to John 10, and so let me read that for you. Remember there in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his down his life for the sheep. Twice there. Twice there, the, the, the repetition of the article, the shepherd, the good one, literally. He who is a hired hand, Jesus continues, is not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf come in and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. That's not a shepherd. Shepherd's there to protect. You, if you run when you see the wolf, you're not protecting, are you? I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. I have other sheep, Jesus says, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will come, become one flock with the shepherd. So obviously, when the writer of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep, you can take it back to John 10, but you can also take it all the way back to the Old Testament. Don't turn there, but Isaiah 63 records this. In the remembrance of the exodus from Egypt, Isaiah records, Then they remembered those days of old when Moses led his people out of Egypt. They cried out, Where is the one who brought Israel through the sea with Moses as their shepherd? Where is the one who sent his Holy Spirit to be among his people? The, the point is, there had been shepherds before, Moses being one, Moses being a, a, a type of, of Christ. This is why he's called the great shepherd. You can't say that about Moses. He was a good shepherd, but not a great shepherd. David, a good shepherd. Remember back in Ezekiel that I read for you? God says there, I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. Yes, David was a shepherd. He was a literal shepherd, by the way. Remember, he shepherded sheep for a living before he became the shepherd of people. By the way, four times... Just listen, Ezekiel 34, 23. Four times this coming shepherd. Oh, let me read it for you. I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. How, I mean, four times. The, the, the fulfillment of this is Christ. This is this is. The, the prophecy of the one that's come. He's going to be a shepherd. He's going to be a shepherd like David. You could say he'd be a shepherd like Moses, but this is why he's called the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the shepherd par excellence. He protects us. He provides for us. Again, there might be many earthly shepherds of the sheep. God has his men, his under shepherds, shepherding his people. And I often think, you know, we're only finite. I mean, I think for myself as a shepherd, I'm only finite. I, 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 we're not a huge church, but it's, it's hard to get to know where every, know exactly what everybody's going through and what everybody's at. And oftentimes, I, I lose sleep, sleep at night knowing, man, has anybody slipped through the cracks? Is there somebody out there that I don't know about that I haven't shepherded or I haven't come alongside and I even haven't prayed for? But I'm, I am comforted that the great shepherd of the sheep is at work. No one gets falls through the cracks. That's why we ultimately point to him. God sent the shepherd and the shepherd gathers the sheep. So again, there might be many earthly shepherds, but Jesus is the shepherd of all, the shepherd of shepherds. 
So we'll stop there. I, I, hopefully that was helpful. Just, just meditating on Christ. As you can see, with all those images, it just has a facet about who he is and what he's done. And again, all of that points to the fact that it was Jesus that brought salvation from God to us. Now, we'll come back next week and we'll look at the, the titles and images that describe Jesus bringing reconciliation from man to God. Again, we looked at his humiliation. Now we look at his, next week we'll look at his exaltation. But the third category, as you can see, is what? The two words there are mediator and high priest. And we'll discuss that next week as well. But let me just mention it now. That part of coming around the Lord's Supper is, is remembering him as our high priest and remembering him as our mediator. Remembering that the only way we have peace with God is, is because of him. There is no peace with God apart from Christ. We just I know you know that, but it's never tiring to hear it, to hear the old, old story. And, and the time around the Lord's Supper is... is good time of remembering that yes it's more than a remembrance it's more than a memorial it's a time of commuting with christ to thank him it's a time as we often say to do business with god you don't want to eat and drink in an unworthy manner so if if you are living in sin and you call yourself a christian you 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 better do quote unquote business with god you don't want to know what type of consequences might come for eating and drinking in an unworthy manner If you're here this morning and you uh, are not a Christian, um, obviously we would want you to be one. We want you to know that if you don't believe in Christ, you will die in your sins. Jesus said that. There's only two places where man goes when he dies. He either goes to heaven or he goes to hell. And remember what we said before, the difference between heaven and hell is what? One has a mediator. And we'll talk about that next week. Jesus is the mediator. He is the name of, given to men under heaven by which we may be saved. Buddha is not a mediator. Muhammad is not a mediator. Go right down the list. Mary's not a mediator. Only Jesus. And your faith must be in him and him alone. Not in yourself, not in your works, but in Christ and Christ alone. Because he is... The only mediator, and he's the only high priest. So we'll leave it there for this morning, and we'll come back around to that. Can I get the musicians to come forward, as well as the men? And as they come, I'll just leave it with you, just in the quietness of your heart, as I said, to do business with the Lord, to make sure that you have confessed those sins, that you've repented from those sins.